Well, let me start by saying it's good to be back with you and well. Uh, I want to say thank you, of course, to Brother Caleb for stepping in at the last minute. He was not exaggerating last week. Um, he got about a 7.15 a.m. phone call um, and stepped in wonderfully, I will say. Did an excellent job. And Ben, who rolled with the punches, he got a call right after I called Caleb to tell him that I was not going to be here. But, uh, I mean, it's great. I, I just tell you, as a, as a pastor, it's great to know you're surrounded by people that you can depend on, um, that are always there to step in when you need them. Uh, that's true of our staff. That's true of many of you uh, as a church family. Uh, and I appreciate all the prayers, all the encouragement. Um, we are all either well or very close to being well, so uh, we're doing good. But, uh, you know, life is full of unexpected events, right? I mean, that, I didn't, I was getting up, getting ready to come to church when I realized that everybody that I'd been with pretty much had gotten sick uh, last week, so uh, I, I didn't expect to be at home last Sunday morning. Uh, and li- that's the way life is sometimes. You, you, things happen that you don't expect, and you have to deal with those things. There are times in life where your world appears to be falling apart. And sometimes that's literally the case. Uh, one of the most well-known disasters in history was the sinking of the Titanic, right? Everybody's familiar with that. <clears throat> it's, uh, it happened in uh, 1912. So you know, over 100 years ago, and people still talk about, they remember the the Titanic. And on April the 14th, uh, at 11.40 p.m. 1912, the Titanic struck an iceberg. And if you know the story, you know what happened. Uh, The whole of the ship buckled, uh, was not punctured, but because of the dent, the seams buckled. Uh, After hitting that iceberg, they separated and water began to pour in. Now, the Titanic was built as the unsinkable ship because it had compartments, and the idea was that you could fill up a compartment and it would still continue uh, to go. But the way that the circumstances were just right, um, negatively speaking, just wrong, I guess. And so the compartments began to fill up, and slowly but surely, the Titanic began to sink. At 2.20 a.m., two hours and 40 minutes, which when you think about it, is a relatively short period of time for an unsinkable ship. Two hours and 40 minutes after the Titanic struck that iceberg, the nose of the ship went under water. The forward deck dips underwater. Water starts to pour in through open hatches more and more until eventually the rear of the ship comes out of the water. The propellers are exposed. The weight buckles the ship, it breaks between the third and fourth stack, and very quickly the ship had sunk. Now the, the events of that, that led up to that, when you think about the arrogance of the designer, um, the desire to get the ship there on time versus heeding safety warnings, Um, actually hitting the iceberg in the exact way they did. I mean, the events came together in such a way that I don't know that we've ever seen to cause a disaster of that type. Even the items lost on the ship was pretty unique. 15,000 bottles of spirits were lost on that ship. A huge 
huge anchor chains. Each link weighed 175 pounds apiece. That's how big this thing was. 30 cases of golf clubs were lost. 30,000 fresh eggs were lost. Potted palms, five grand pianos were lost on the Titanic. A cask of china for Tiffany's, a case of gloves for Marshall Fields, and of course, most valuable and most tragic of all, 1,500 lives were lost in this disaster. And even the events of it going down and the failure to evacuate properly, the failure to have enough lifeboats, it changed um, safety on the water for um, maritime safety forever, right? I mean, it, it, was, it was a catastrophic, life-altering event, and one that was unexpected. Now, not that extreme. Now, a wreck of any kind is, is devastating, right? If you've been in a car wreck, you know what I'm talking about. A shipwreck is probably, I can't think of many, if any, that are more torturing because of how slow it happens. Even, you know, we read about two hours and 40 minutes, that seems pretty quick, but not if you're on the ship and it's going down. That's a long time to wait to see what's going to happen or for your demise. Not as extreme as the Titanic or maybe even a shipwreck, but have you ever felt that way in your life where things just gradually get worse and worse and one event after another happens, and life is just spiraling. It's just going in what you would consider a not-so-good or a disastrous direction. You've had times, and we've all had times in our lives where we've at least on some level felt that way, that the ship's going down and we're going down with it, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that we can do about it. Well, in the midst of those times... How do we have assurance? How do we have hope? How can we continue to move forward knowing that that disaster is either possible or likely or even we know it's going to happen? Because life is like that sometimes. Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning as we continue our series. Two more weeks, this week and next week, Lord willing, (laughs) I learned last week, um, that we will finish this series called Hope, the Assurance to Face Our Future. And we should have hope. We should have assurance. It's based on the verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, where the Lord tells the nation of Israel, God tells the nation of Israel, for I know the plans that I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And God said that to the nation of Israel. We have the same promise in Scripture for all of us who are a part of the family of God, who are believers. And the purpose of our series is to live with assurance that can only be found in knowing Christ and fulfilling his plan for my life. So that even in those times when life seems to be sinking or we're on a sinking ship, we can have assurance, we can have hope, and know that we are fulfilling God's plan. If you could accurately predict your future and change anything you wanted to, if you knew the outcome, and you could change it based on where you're headed now, what would you change? Think about that. What would you change? If you could predict or at least plan your future, how would you plan it? Well, think about that all you want to, but you can't do that, so sorry. None of us can. We don't know the future. We get glimpses, but none of us truly knows the future. We don't know what life is going to bring. We don't know what our futures hold. 
We know who holds the future, but our future unfolds before us, one day at a time, one minute at a time. And we look forward, and when times are good, it's easy to look forward with confidence, right? When things are going well. But when times are bad, when times are difficult, how do we do that? How do we look forward? You know, I'm, I'm sure there's been times in your life where you've asked, Lord, what are you doing? Or where are you? I bet you there were plenty of people on the deck of the Titanic asking that question. God, where are you? And there are going to be those times. You know, there's another famous shipwreck that we see in Acts chapter 27. You can turn there in your Bibles if you have your copy of God's Word. Paul boards a ship. And we see a pretty detailed account of what happens there. Paul boarded a ship to Italy. He's a prisoner. He's going to appear before Caesar. And there's a Roman centurion named Julius there to escort him. And he was in charge of the shipyard. He was in charge of getting Paul uh, to where he needed to go. The trip, as we're going to see, is pretty difficult. And aside from possibly the Titanic, The shipwreck that we read about in Acts chapter 27 is a story of one of the most famous shipwrecks in history. Even more, it's it's one of the most detailed accounts of an ancient ancient, uh, history of a shipwreck that takes place. And, you know, you... Many people looked back on the Titanic and immediately, like I said, it changed safety on, on the seas forever and standards for safety. And there were lessons that were learned from that. Well, we can look at the shipwreck in a little different way in Acts 27 and learn some lessons from what takes place in this shipwreck. And that's what we want to do this morning is, is, is look at, at how this exciting and horrifying event unfolds, what happens, and, and take some lessons to be used in our lives on how to look forward and have hope and have anticipation even in the midst of the most terrifying and difficult circumstances, the storms of life. So from Paul, we're going to learn a couple of lessons. The first is this. We need to be courageous even in the face of rejection. So Paul's a prisoner He's got this Roman centurion escorting him, guarding him. He's going to appear before Caesar. Since he's a Roman citizen, Luke was allowed to go with him, as we can assume probably his personal physician. And we also see Aristarchus as his personal attendant. Being a Roman citizen, he had a few more privileges. But he's being escorted to appear before Caesar. And they board this ship, and the, the destiny, he's going from Sidon to Myra. And the trip immediately becomes difficult along the way. Weather is not cooperating. At Myris, Julius, this Roman centurion, uh, he finds a ship going to Italy. It's a large ship, and because the weather had been rough, it's a grain ship. And the, and, and the reasoning is, is that it'll be able to handle the weather a little bit more. And, and, and that's, that's a good theory, okay? So they find, he finds another, another ship. It takes many days, we read in Acts 27, to travel 130 miles from, again, from Myra. Uh, The the idea is is that, 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 again, he's going to appear before Caesar. So from Myra to Nidus 
it takes, 100, uh, it takes days to travel 130 miles, and the weather continues to be rough. So when they get to Nidus, the centurion has a d- decision that he has to make. All right, do I stop? Do we stop the trip? Or do I continue on to get Paul to, to Rome, to where he can appear before Caesar? There's a decision he has to make. The centurion has to decide they're at Fair Havens. Do they winter there or do they keep on going so that they can reach their port, which is the port of Phoenix? Now, we see a reference in verse 9 that gives us a pretty important detail. It talks about the Day of Atonement and it already being over, which gives us a time frame. It gives us a time of year. The Day of Atonement had passed, we read. And this tells us that this was sometime toward the end of September or the beginning of October, either A.D. 59 or A.D. 60, sometime in that time frame. Now, here's why that's important. When you're traveling in this area on the water, they only, had, they only got about 40 miles to go here. So the trip, they've already made a good portion of the trip. But when you're traveling this part of the Mediterranean, it was always dangerous after September the 14th, impossible after November the 11th. So they're right in that spot where it's incredibly dangerous, but not impossible to make this last leg of this trip. So the centurion has a decision to make. So what does he do? Well, we're going to read in Acts 27 verses 9 through 12 to begin with. This is a risk. By now, much of the time had passed and the voyage was already dangerous Since the Day of Atonement was already over, Paul gave his advice. So Paul speaks up. He gives advice here. He tells them, men, I can see that this voyage is headed toward disaster and heavy loss. Not only the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul had said. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix a harbor on Crete facing the southwest and northwest and to winter there. So, Paul gave his advice here. All right, he says it's not a good idea. Well, the centurion listens to the captain of the ship. Just so happens that the owner of the ship is on board also, and the owner says, no, we can make it. The captain says, we can make it. Now, human reason, Paul has no experience sailing. So I'm going to listen to the pilot, probably, rather than the prisoner. Okay? I mean, you can understand why the centurion did this. Now, Paul had been in a few shipwrecks already, so he's kind of an expert in that. But you can understand why he listens to who he listens to. I mean, pilot says go, owner says go, prisoner says stay, you're going to go with the majority. And that's what the centurion did. He goes with the majority. And listen, to begin with, it seems like everything's going well. They get a, a, a wind that, that seems to be pushing them in, in the right direction. They, everything seems to be uh, going in the, in, in the proper way, but they're going to find out pretty soon that that's not the case. Now, here's the lesson within this first little section here. Paul's the minority here, yet he still speaks up. He gives his opinion. He knows what's likely to happen or what is going to happen. And he speaks up. The the pilot is against him. The owner's against him. Arguably a lot more experience, yet he still 
speaks up. He still says what he knows and believes to be true. There are going to be times in life when you and I have to say the truth, even if it's not the popular thing to say. Even if the majority is against us. We've got to be willing to share the truth regardless of the consequences and then stand by that truth regardless of the consequences. That's hard to do under the best of circumstances. Almost impossible to do under the worst of circumstances by human effort alone, yet we're called to do it anyway. Tell the truth regardless. Be courageous in the face of rejection. That's the first lesson we learned from Paul. The second lesson is this. Be encouraging when we would prefer pouting. Now you can see this, Paul, nobody listens to him. Well, I'm just going to go sit in my corner and pout. Or seek revenge or something. That, he could have done that. And again, the, first, the plan seems to be good. A south wind comes up. They thought it's going to be smooth sailing. They edged along the coast. They're making their way to the port of Phoenix. But then a northeaster wind hits them. Hits from the top. It it takes over the ship. It begins to push them off course. They called this wind Uroquilo, which comes from the word meaning east wind, a Latin word for north wind. Uh, Their plan is to head northwest. The wind pushes them in a different direction. So all they could do was let this wind, they can't, they can't fight it, they let this wind push them southwest. So they're off course. They're headed towards the African coastal city of Cyrene. The crew does all they can. They're trying to keep the boat afloat. They're doing all they can to keep the boat um, on top of the water. Um, they took the small boat they were towing, they pull it up on board because it was could be dragging them or whatever the case may be, hindering the ship's progress. They're doing everything they can. They tie the boat up, we read, to keep it from coming apart because of all the rough wind and waves. They're doing everything they possibly can. They take down some of the sails. They lower the sea anchor because they're drifting off court. They do everything that they can to try to save their lives and the lives of everybody on board. This goes on, now think about this, two hours and 40 minutes for the Titanic. This goes on for two weeks. They're fighting the seas. They're trying to stay alive, doing everything that they possibly can. Completely dark outside. Then we read they don't eat, which you can't blame them. They're stressed out, right? So they, two weeks this goes on. They're not eating under intense stress, fearing for their lives, on high alert the whole time. And then Luke says, not surprisingly, verse 20, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Well, yeah. I mean, we would run out of hope too and energy and everything else, right? Fighting and fighting and fighting. They begin to throw all the equipment overboard, last ditch, everything, stuff they need. They're throwing it overboard because, you know, they're they're doing all that they can. Everything possible. And then we read they're giving up, and you can't really blame them. Many of us probably would have too. Now, remember Paul. Paul told them not to go. Now, you could see him sitting over there plotting his revenge or just pouting. And he kind of does give them a little, I told you so, but I have to believe it was in a godly way. 
But, I mean, he had to remind them because, hey, y'all didn't listen to me before. You need to listen to me now. They, they didn't listen. And he could have just sat over there and, hey, they didn't, you didn't want my advice a while ago. We can all just go down together. But he doesn't do that. We read in verse 21, he says, men, you ought to have followed my advice. Yeah, maybe that's an I told you so, but it's also very true. This really ha- all happened, think about it, because one man didn't listen to God's man. I mean, God had given the message through Paul, and the centurion didn't listen. And sometimes we get ourselves into storms for the same reason, impatience. That's really, they wanted to get on to their destination instead of, of waiting it out. Maybe not the best place to, to stay for the winter, but it would have been safer than where they were right now. But they wanted to get to where they were going. Acts 27, 11, read it again. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul had said. So here's a truth to think about. Accepting expert advice that's contrary to God's will, following a majority, and or trusting ideal conditions doesn't mean a thing if God has told you to do something completely different. Now, a lot of times... God's going to speak through your circumstances and other people. But there are going to be some times where he calls you to do and me to do something that seems completely irrational, contrary to popular opinion. Everybody in your life is going to be telling you to do otherwise. But you know God's leading you in this direction. And that in that moment, it is a test of faith. While I listen to the voice of God or while I listen to the other voices around me. And it's in those moments... Well, we have to decide, do we really believe that God is who he says he is? Paul steps up here, though. He begins as a prisoner, but he's about to become the captain by default. He steps up. He takes over the situation. And it's here that we learn a crisis does not make a person. A crisis shows what a person's made of. What's on the inside begins to come out. And Paul, he's a leader. He's a godly man, and it begins to come out. Paul tells him this in verses 22 through 25. Now I urge you to take courage, he says, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For last night an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. In other words, you're going to make it to your destination. You're going to appear before Caesar. God has a greater plan in that. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So not only is Paul going to be spared, everybody on board is going to be spared here, okay? So take courage, he says, because I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told me. Take courage. That word literally means to be happy and in good spirits. Now, again, think about the setting here. He's saying, hey, guys, don't worry, be happy, (laughs) Cheer up, everybody. I know you haven't eaten for two weeks. You know, you think we're all going to die. The ship's going down, but don't worry about it. Take courage. But it's the basis of that encouragement that gives him reason to say that. It's in verse 25. He says, take courage because I believe God. God says this. And if God says it, it's going to happen. God says we're going to be spared. It's much more than just like a positive mental attitude, you know, don't worry, be happy. It's, no, take courage because God says. Here's what the Lord says. 
It was a solid faith, not in Paul's ability, not in some ability to predict the future. It was, it was a faith and a confidence in God's ability and what God was promising. Paul already knew that they were going to make it. Why did he know that? Well, the angel told him in verses 23 and 24. He can't appear before Caesar if he doesn't survive. And he's promised, God has promised that he would appear before Caesar. He would have to survive. So in the face of disaster, when all hope is gone, trust in the promises of God. Go to the word of God and the promises that he's made, that you know he's made. That apply to all believers the promises that you know that he's made through his word to you. To preserve you. To protect you. To give you what you need to endure until your time on earth is done. Because he will fulfill his promises. We have the word of God. Isaiah 41.10 Do not fear for I am with you. Do not be afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 43. 1 through 5. Now, this is what the Lord says to the one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior. I've given Egypt a ransom for you. Cush and Seba in your place, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I will give people in exchange for you and nations instead of your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring you, I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. Now, if you think these promises are only for the nation of Israel, look at Romans 15:4. For whatever was written in the past was written for your instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. The, specifically the story of, of Paul's shipwreck in Acts 27. It's there for a lot of reasons. It's interesting history. We've got a detailed account of a shipwreck from ancient history. I mean, that's pretty cool. That's pretty interesting. But it's, it's more than that. There's lessons in here because it's a metaphor of, of what all Christians are going to experience through their journey in life. All of us. We're going to face trials. We're going to face difficulties. We're going to face hardships, high seas, storms in our lives. But in it all and through it all, we've got the promises of God and the assurance of God that he will finish the work that he began in us and carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus when either he returns or he takes us to be home to be with him. He will finish what he started. You know, I'm sure a lot of God's lowercase G were prayed to that day because Paul says, my God, the God, the one and only true God, the only God that answered, answered. A lot of gods were prayed to, but only the real God answered and gave them a message of assurance. They, wouldn't only be, they would, would not only be saved, but the ship would run aground on an island. God was there. He had promised to protect them. They would not perish, so there's nothing to be afraid of. And there's this huge storm, certainly. But what Paul finds within this and what we see in here is that there are some anchors that God gives us. You heard a beautiful song about anchors. There are anchors that God gives us to hold on to, to keep us from drifting, from being lost in times of difficulty. And Paul gives us these anchors. The first one is the anchor of God's presence. The angel had spoken to Paul. 
Paul knew God was with him. The presence of God was with Paul. Through the word of God and through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was living in and through Paul. So in the midst of this storm, Paul could be confident and have assurance because God's presence was with him. We have that that same presence. The same Holy Spirit that lived in Paul lives in those of us who are followers of Christ. We have the anchor of God's presence. We also have the anchor of God's ownership. Paul said, an angel of the God that I belong to. I'm his. I belong to God. And we belong to him because he bought us. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. We belong to him. That's an anchor. If we are his, he's not going to let us go. He's going to hold on to us. And then there's the anchor of service for God. Paul had courage because he was anchored in the fact that he was on a mission from God. He says, the God that I belong to and serve. God's given me a mission. He's given me a purpose. And I'm not done until he's done with me. And the truth is, if you are a child of God, in the will of God, serving God faithfully, you are invincible until he's done with you. That's not a ticket to do it. I can do whatever I want. I'm invincible. No, the, the qualifiers there is that you're a child of God, that you're in the will of God and serving God faithfully. Now, he may call you home. It may be your time. But if it's not your time and he's given you a mission, there is nothing that, that anyone, including Satan, can do to you until he's done with you. And Paul knew that. He knew God had a greater purpose in him appearing to Caesar, that, that God wasn't finished with him yet. And so he knew nothing was going to happen to him. And then there's the anchor of trust in God. Verse 24, Paul continues to share what the angel, angel tells him. Don't be afraid, Paul. The angel says, you must stand before Caesar. And look, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, take courage, men, because I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told to me. We can trust the promises of God. God has the ability to turn disaster into deliverance. And hopelessness into hope. And he does just that. Paul knew that. He experienced that, and so did everybody on that ship. So we learn here that we can be thankful even when we have little. And there will be times when the ship's going down, all hope seems to be lost. There's nothing in life that you can hold on to. But we can be thankful even when we have little in this world because in Christ we have everything that we need. At midnight on the 14th day, these sailors, they sense land. Maybe the sound of the surf, changing the wind, some other indication. They knew land was coming. Again, it's midnight. They can't see, but they, they know land is close. So they checked the water's depth. They found out that what Paul said about running aground could actually happen. Surprise, surprise. So they dropped four anchors from the rear of the ship, and they pray for daylight. Now, contrary to the law of the sea... Some of the sailors tried to abandon ship, leaving all the passengers behind. I mean, the, again, think about what all they've been through here. Panic has set in a long time ago. I mean, they're just ready to get off of that ship. So they decide they're going to do that. Now, had they succeeded all of the experienced men aboard that could handle the ship, would have been gone. That would have been disaster. They would leave only soldiers and only prisoners there to do what needed to be done to bring the ship in. 
And without a lifeboat, they'd cut the lifeboat loose for whatever reason. So they have no lifeboat. Paul's credibility and influence is growing, though. Verse 31 says, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. We all have to stay here, Paul's saying. You can't go anywhere. You can't abandon ship right now. Why did Paul say it was necessary for them to stay on board? Now, if God says they're going to make it, they're going to make it. So why does he, what does it matter if they leave or not? Well, the reason it matters is because God had either given him the specific instructions to do it that way, which we can assume that he did. Maybe Paul's just using common sense here. You know, God gives us a brain. We need you guys to get this ship in safely to where we can get off and everybody survive. But the reason it matters is because Paul had heard from the Lord, and that's what Paul said. That's why it matters. They all needed to stay there, and they learned by now that they needed to listen to Paul. They, it appears that maybe in verse 32, the soldiers were acting a little bit impulsively, cutting the lifeboat loose. Maybe they could have posted a guard there. I don't know, but they did that. <coughs> Excuse me. They did that. And, and, and now they are, they are figuratively and literally all in the same boat, right? They're all in this together, but they've got a message from the Lord. If you look at the way things are going, there's not a whole lot to be thankful for. But here's what Paul does. Twice, he'd been right. Now he's the leader. He's the captain, so to speak. He speaks to them again. He calls them together. He knows the next day they're going to have to bring this ship in, and it's going to be hard work. They're going to need rest. They're going to need energy. And that's the last thing that anybody's thinking about. But he calls them together. The stress, the fear, the uncertainty. He tells them, you need to eat. We're going to need our energy. He's a prisoner, maybe even financially poor, away from his family. They'd just been through a horrific experience. Yet he calls the crew, the prisoners together Tells them to eat, and then he does something in verse 35. Let's look at verses 33 through 35. When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. 14 days. So I urge you to take some food, for this is for your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. After this, after he said these things, And had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God. He gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. He broke it, and he gave thanks. Now think about what a witness that must have been. I mean, they're all terrified, rightfully so. Yeah, they're, they're more inclined to believe Paul, but and it doesn't really look like things haven't been going well. They're exhausted, they're stressed out, they're tired. And he says, hey, let's eat. And before we do that, let me give thanks to the Lord. And we can know that whatever comes our way, just like Paul, whatever God allows to come our way, we can be thankful because he loves us, God does, and his grace is sufficient. His strength is sufficient. You know, we're all often objective-oriented, but God is process-oriented. God, God, you know, we just want to get to Rome like the centurion, but God is concerned about how we get there and what happens along the way. There are lessons. Now, Paul was a spiritually mature man. 
growing in his faith, but he was still a work in progress. God had to teach Paul some lessons through this. God was still growing Paul, preparing him for what was coming next. God wanted to use Paul to impact the people around him. I mean, we're all a work in progress. God has work to do, and he uses the storms of life to accomplish things that we are not open to when times are good. So he uses that to mold us and to shape us and to continue to grow us if we will continue in faith and depend on him and trust in him. But he also uses us through those storms to impact the people around us. Because when they see the hope that we have, when they see the endurance that we have, when they see the strength that we have, then they want to know why. A lot of gods were prayed to that day, but only one God was testified about. Only one God proved to be right. Only one God spoke, the one and only true God. It can be good for us. Storms can, and they can be good for us. God's sovereign providence governed every specific detail of this trip. Paul listened, he obeyed, and everybody aboard was saved. Paul, like all true servants of God, knew how to practice the presence of Jesus in his life. And he lived it out. And he did it because he had anchors. And I brought an anchor with me today. It's a small anchor, but you'll get the idea. So an anchor, what's an anchor used for? We read about anchors. We've heard a song about anchors. We just talked about the anchor on the ship. An anchor is used primarily when you think of an anchor. You think about a ship out at sea that doesn't want to drift away, right? So the anchor, it's usually a lot bigger than this. I mean, think about the Titanic. uh, Over 100 pounds a link, a chain link, right? I think it was 167, something like that. I can't remember. But a large anchor, even on a small boat, you're out on the lake, you throw the anchor overboard for what purpose? You don't want the boat to drift off, right? Especially if you're out, you can get lost. I mean, if you're fishing or whatever, um, you, you just, or you're just you know, relaxing on the pontoon boat, whatever the case may be, you set the anchor so that the boat doesn't drift away. The hooks dig into the, the seabed or, or the ocean floor, whatever the case may be, to keep the, the boat still. Some use anchors close to the pier. I remember we were in Destin a few years ago. There were boats tied up on anchors, essentially, in a harbor that had been abandoned, but they weren't going anywhere because they were tied to anchors. They weren't at the pier, but they were out in the harbor there. Some use anchors just to keep their boat there so that when they return to use it, it'll still be there, right, so that it doesn't drift away. And as we learned in our story today, that sometimes in the midst of a storm, an anchor will be thrown overboard to keep the boat from drifting off course. Or at least that's, that's the attempt. That's the idea. But here's the thing about an anchor. When an anchor's doing its job, you can't see it. It's underwater. You might see the rope, but you can't see the actual anchor. There are signs that it's there. But you only know the anchor's doing its job when you experience the benefits of what it's designed to do. And the anchors that God gives, all of those things, it reminds me of the most important key to experiencing the presence, the power, the sufficiency of God. And that's that the anchor represents the Holy Spirit in our lives. The anchor of the Holy Spirit Without the Holy Spirit, you don't have any of the other anchors that we've talked about. 
Unless you're a child of God with the Holy Spirit living within you, you won't have the assurance and hope you need and strength you need. But here's the deal. In those times when life is coming apart at the seams, when the ship seems to be going down, we can know that the anchor is doing its job, his job. We may not see it, may not feel it at times. You ever wondered where God was because you didn't feel his presence in your life in a difficult time? But we can know based on the promises of his word, the testimony of saints like Paul, the testimony of believers that have gone before us, past experience, we can know that even if we don't see the anchor, the anchor is holding. The anchor will hold until the day that either God returns, Jesus Christ returns, or he takes us home to be with him. And that day won't come for a child of God until he's done with you here on earth. Until your mission is completed. But we can know the anchor of God's presence, the anchor of his word, the anchor of the future, the plan that he has for us, the anchor of serving him and fulfilling that plan, all of those things. And here's where we get the peace that comes in the midst of the storm. The true anchors in any storm, physical emotional or spiritual, whatever storm it is, can only be found in faith, hope, prayer, and the sovereignty of God. Faith in Christ. Hope that comes from being a child of God. The promises of of God in his word. Prayer, staying connected in communion with God each day. That's the only way you're going to be aware of his presence and know that he's got a plan and the sovereignty. God speaking through his spirit, through his word, and the sovereignty of God. Paul's character and faith, and God carried the day here. For him, tragedy was just another opportunity to see God move. Don't think he wasn't scared. Don't think he wasn't concerned. He may even got a little bit worried, but in the end, he trusted God and he remained steadfast, believing in the promises of God. To the very end, to the end of his life, we see. He ran the race, he finished the race, and he finished well. He trusted in the anchor of God's presence and power and plan for his life. Do you? Do I? In the midst of the storm, whatever storm you're in right now, whatever you're experiencing, big, small, anywhere in between, whatever's going on in your life, it may be hard, it may be impossible. Hold on to the promises of God. Stay anchored in his word. All you have to do is wake up every day and trust in him day by day, minute by minute, second by second. Let him do the heavy lifting. Be comforted by the power and presence and grace of a God who loves you and gave his son Jesus to die for your sins so that you could be saved and endure throughout all of eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we know that there's a lot in life that doesn't make sense. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. There are challenges, big challenges, small challenges, nuisances, hindrances, many things about living in this fallen world that makes life uncomfortable, unbearable at times, painful, grief, suffering, all of those things. And we know that one day all of that's going to be gone. And we praise you for that. We thank you for that promise. And that promise in and of itself is something to hold on to in the midst of the storm. 
But God, we know that in order to make it through the storms of life, we have to have your presence living in and through us, which means we have to have trusted you for salvation. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by you. You said it, we believe it. And if there's anybody here in this place or watching online who has not trusted you for salvation, I pray that you would bring them under conviction right now, that you would draw them to yourself and that they would turn to you in repentance, seeking forgiveness for their sins, knowing that you will grant it graciously, that you died for their sins, that you were raised from the dead to defeat death so that they could have eternal life through you. Lord, for those of us who are believers, we also know that we have to be saved, but we also have to be practicing your presence just as Paul did. We have to be living in obedience, grounded in your word, walking with you daily, practicing obedience in order to have the strength that we need to make it through the storms of life. And so I pray that right now, for those of us who know you, that this would just be a time of reflection Holy Spirit, go down deep and do your work of unveiling anything that would keep us from doing just that, from, from enduring, from having peace, from having assurance, from having hope. Just speak to our hearts. Show us what we need to do. If it's a sin that needs to be confessed or disobedience or, or whatever it is, Lord, just speak to us. Just show us how we need to respond to your word this morning. And may we do it with instant obedience, because any hesitation in obedience is just disobedience. Lord, may we obey you, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of decision?